Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know how on last week's episode you were talking about how everybody had made the John Wall, the Wall jokes, and you just heard it so much that it really wasn't fun anymore? Yes, absolutely. Okay, in that spirit, I'm going to kind of do a little bit here and th- this is just on behalf of the 50 people in my instagram direct messages who wanted me to make this joke i don't actually think it's funny but i'm just <laughs> just bear with me here okay uh you know scott brooks uh wants to see you in his office andrew uh, you know bring your playbook uh and you know he'll he'll have <laughs> he'll have some words for you is that the joke yeah well you're ron baker you just got waved by the oh. wizards man <laughs> people really push that hard okay because i get dms about it too i don't see it we both have like floppy longish white guy hair but beyond that there's really nothing similar between me and ron baker so i spent like an hour trying to get that twin <laughs> that that twinning photo service working tonight because uh-huh. i was gonna up i was gonna upload your photo and see if it matched you with ron baker uh, it never actually worked, and Ron Baker's probably not a big enough celebrity to even be in their database, so I can't confirm or deny whether you look like him, okay. but lots of people do. I can confirm that part. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, and you know what? At least it's not a John Wall, Trump Wall joke, because I realize, I think what it is is that I'm in D.C., so like every political joke just gets hammered into the ground and gets old, like instantly and so i think that's why i have such a visceral reaction to those annoying jokes oh Um, boy typical beltway snob just (laughs) telling everybody else what's funny and not funny i guess no you just you grow up in dc you get sick of all political discourse really quickly um but a question for you though you had a field trip tonight you went to houston did you see our boy scott um so scott travis what other Scott? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I did. I tried to get video of him. He's he's like the uh, MC of the Rockets welcome video, I believe. Um, I didn't I didn't succeed in capturing video, but I'm glad to see that he is a uh, an ambassador for the Rockets this year. Well, now that you've seen Harden in person in Houston, are you still tipping, or you know, are you are you candy painting, or are you still in this like anti-Harden zone? Always oh, not really that good. Steph's so much better well, uh, mentality that you've been in for years. We're gonna get to that because the Harden stuff is getting pretty wild, man. I mean, I was I was crushed that we recorded last week's podcast right before Warriors Rockets uh, because we had we had held out hoping that we could catch like a good Spurs Kawhi game and that would be kind of a good lead in and of course that game was a complete waste of time and then we just had to record and man if we could have just waited until like 2 a.m east coast time I was ready to go off because that was just awesome that was was as good as basketball gets Um, but while we're talking field trips can I tell you a quick story about my time in Houston here I want every story all the time. Every time you go somewhere, I want the full details. I want it, really, I want it on Instagram Live. I think you're ready <laughs> to make that jump. If we throw you into public, you should just be, you know, live streaming. But sure, tell us on the podcast. Okay, well, very quickly here, you and I were supposed to record this afternoon, and that got screwed up because of timing and, and complications in Houston. And so we had to push it to tonight. And 
the hotel I'm staying in, the walls are pretty thin. Like I've been able to overhear conversations while I'm sitting in my room. And so, wait, 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 wait. Are these real conversations? Or are we talking quote unquote conversations where you're like, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> putting your earplugs in and hoping that there's no kids in the other room? No, just regular conversation. That's what I've overheard this morning. And so I, it occurred to me that recording a podcast at 1 a.m. local time and forcing them to listen to an hour of my banter. They wouldn't even hear you. So it would just be like one person talking to himself for 70 minutes. It occurred to me that that would be kind of a dickish move on my part. So what I did was... (laughs) Welcome to the big city. You know, you have your... (laughs) These poor people, they're going to Houston. Let's see a Rockets game. Let's get a concert. And instead, they get half of an open floor at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I can't think of anything worse. Um, And so what I did was come downstairs, and I snuck into this ballroom, which was unlocked. So I'm now sitting in a giant ballroom by myself. I don't know whether it's going to affect the audio. I mean, it, it feels pretty cavernous in here. So maybe there'll sound be some great. sort of echo. But anyways, so I sat down. I set up the little microphone here. I had my backpack. I had everything laid out. And I was here for about five minutes getting the uh, email questions together and waiting for you to, to give me a call when it occurred to me that this is not the, like sneaking around a hotel is is not the adult way to go about things so what i did was say you know what i'm gonna go down and talk to the front desk and say i'm just gonna oh. be in this ballroom for the next yeah. hour and 15 minutes is that cool? you go to the concierge you're like hey you know i'm a big shot podcast host from sports <laughs> illustrated that's probably what you do i can't begin to tell you how dorky it feels to be like hey uh I know it's past midnight, but I just need an hour to record a podcast upstairs, if that's cool with you guys. But they were very helpful, so that was successful. The The issue was I came back to the ballroom and, and came back to get my stuff and sit down and pod with you, and all of my stuff had been taken off the table that I was sitting at, and was nowhere to be found. So, so you got robbed. Perfect. <laughs> that's that's what I thought. I was like, God, someone has been tracking my movement and just pounced for the like five minute interval they had there and uh, began to panic. And no, it turned out the person who had been tracking my movement was a hotel security guard. And um, when he lost me, he realized that like, if he just stole all my stuff and took it downstairs, that eventually I would have to come find him. And uh, so that's how it worked out. Well, I've never had that happen, but I have been shot down to use like the conference room of like probably 12 or 13 different courtyard <laughs> totally Mari- courtyard Marriott's across the country. And for whatever reason, like you and I have actually done podcasts in person in random conference rooms at courtyards. Like, didn't we do one in Oklahoma City one year? Maybe yeah. that was me and me and Rob, I think. But no, we did one in, in Cleveland together in some random Marriott conference room once. So I've never been shot down when it's been more than one other person besides me. But every time I've tried to do that pitch of like, hey, guys, <laughs> like, can I just borrow your room at 1 a.m. to do a podcast? I just get like the flat no. It doesn't matter, male, female, how old the person is working. They're just like, no, this sounds way too sketchy. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to have to explain it to my boss in the morning. Just a flat no. So I'm I'm impressed that you've got, you know, better bedside manner than I do in, in terms of uh, – 
of talking your way into places that you probably shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. I think my exact words to the hotel employee downstairs were, I said, look, this is a really stupid request, and it's really strange, <laughs> but uh, I just need to hang out upstairs in the ballroom for about an hour and a half. And so, anyways, here we are. It's 55 degrees in this room for some reason, and we do have to talk about Harden. We have to talk about um, the Warriors, the Lakers, but I think we should start with the news of the week, at least as as of Monday and Sunday night. Um Tom Thibodeau, our old favorite, is no for longer some re- with us. For some reason, I'm picturing Thibodeau in this same ballroom, like queued up with a laptop watching game film and screaming <laughs> ice while you're trying to tape, and you're just like, hey, keep it down, keep it quiet. I'm trying to do a podcast here. Well, you know what? That reminds me. I, I was talking to someone earlier about how great Tibbs' life must be going forward because I think he's the type of guy who is probably addicted to that watching tape lifestyle where he's just working 18 or 19 hours a day and you're it's like obviously unhealthy he's got family members concerned for his well-being and now i mean i think this is like a a forced separation that is probably a good thing and he's going to get to spend the next couple years making like eight million dollars a year and drinking wine and hanging out at celtics practices i I think this is a, a life win for tibbs I don't see that happening, Andrew. I see him like (laughs) I see him like coaching a title team in like the Continental Basketball Association or like pulling the Dwayne Casey and going to Japan and just like running the whole show. Like (laughs) I I, I don't I don't see any separation from basketball. I think he's probably back on the job, whatever he wants to define the job as this morning. Well, I hope for his sake that he he develops some hobbies. Maybe he can get deep into Netflix. Um, But as for the basketball side of this, Ben, Andre asks, what was the ultimate reason for Tibbs's firing? Was it his handling of the Jimmy Butler situation and all its ripple effects? Was it because Cat wanted him out? Was this the front office feeling like Tibbs is a liability in attracting free agents and could be widely rejected by players around the league? Was Or was this just Glenn Taylor trying to dive into tanking mode here? And he also asks, could Tibbs still have a job in today's NBA? So why don't we start first with with why he was fired and, and how we got here? What do you think? Well, I think uh, you should go first because isn't your basic argument that it comes down to personality for Tibbs? I mean, he just sort of rubbed everybody the wrong way for so long that he just sort of got himself into a situation where he didn't have allies. Yeah, I do think that that's a huge part of it. And um, and I think probably the most interesting part of the story is that um, I think that if Tibbs treated people better and put more time into relationships, I mean, thinking about him in Minnesota, and I don't really have firsthand knowledge of this, but I do know that for the last two, two and a half years, basically since Thibodeau arrived in Minnesota, there were always these weird whispers about tension with the rest of the organization and Tibbs kind of operating in this paranoid style where he didn't trust anybody else who had been there before him. And he also was not interested in participating in any of the sort of like community stuff or business driving stuff that other coaches have to do. If it wasn't about basketball, Tibbs basically didn't care. And what this all reminded me of is is going back to Sam Hinkie, where Sam Hinkie sort of 
approached his job as if uh, approached his, his job with the media as if it it just didn't matter you know like whatever narratives were out there were not going to affect the the basketball product and that and his tenure would ultimately succeed or fail on the court and um and i think a lot of people sort of came to resent him for that and that and sort of like cultivating that air of mystery and um similar to that i think that tibbs just didn't recognize the value of of kind of fostering goodwill among fans and among other people working with the wolves and um and that sort of when when the Jimmy Butler shit all blew up, I think that there are there's a version of this where Tibbs could have survived, but he just didn't have any benefit of the doubt, and I and I think all of it kind of did him in in the end. No, that makes sense. I mean, I think if if everybody was on Team Tibbs and it turned into this like Tibbs versus Butler civil war, yeah, and everybody rallied around Tibbs, and then they could all just paint Jimmy as the bad guy and move forward without him. Uh, you know the trade terms were decent enough in, in terms of getting Covington and Sarge back that like you could have maybe tried to rally things and, and tried to save face and move forward but you're right he wasn't in that situation to me though I don't think Tibbs is like big or the organization's big failure was like giving Tibbs too much power as the president and the coach which I know some people have argued I don't think the big mistake was trading for Jimmy uh, in the first place, because I think that the terms are very favorable from Minnesota's standpoint. Yeah. I would have done that trade if I if I were them again. I think the big mistake was that when Tib Tibbs needed to be a GM, he wasn't capable of doing it. When he needed to have the distance uh, from Jimmy Butler, the player, and Jimmy Butler, the asset, to realize that, hey, look, we have to start figuring out a different plan because my original plan of bringing him in here, having him lift these young guys up, lead them to the playoffs, play like an all-NBA level player and build this thing around him is just not going to work because Jimmy is not bought into that vision yeah. and he's not willing to re-sign. And he just delayed on that for months and months and months. And, and the reason why I think that was the trigger point for Tibbs was because he was a jerk last year too, right? But they were winning and he was very expensive. Wait, so, so a, who was a jerk? Was it Jimmy or Tibbs? Because I, well, I think I think, I think both were. But yeah. what I'm saying is on your point about Tibbs like just being a jerk and getting himself fired with that, he was also a jerk last year, but he was winning. Right. And because he was so expensive, that gave him enough uh, cushion to sort of continue to get by, right? But once the Jimmy situation plays out how it is, they're no longer winning at the level they were last year. Remember, with Jimmy on the court, they were a 50-plus win team. I mean, if they had had everybody like in a computer simulation this year with yeah. no personalities and with no injuries, this could be the number two seed in, in the in the Western Conference, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not winning at that level. Uh, Jimmy turns on the guy who had sort of uh, instilled him in this very powerful position within the locker room. Uh, and at that point, because Tibbs was not able to have enough distance as an executive to say, look... We've got to go another direction quickly. Like one thing I've thought, Kevin Pritchard, right? If yeah. Kevin Pritchard, who traded Paul George, you know, pretty quickly once he was put, you know, put in position after Larry Bird, if he was in Tibbs' spot last summer, don't you think Pritchard would have surveyed the landscape in July and been like, you know, Jimmy doesn't want the extension. Uh, he's holding out for tons of money. We're not really going to be in a position to pay him all of that. It's time to start trade talks seriously right now. Move forward as quickly as we can. Uh, and just you know, do what's best for the organization. That was never Tibbs's mentality. I mean, he went down with the ship all the way through trading camp and into the regular season. Yeah. And to me, that was his sort of fatal flaw. 
Yeah, I guess so. I think where I would push back to some degree is that Tibbs actually did a decent job of getting value back for Jimmy, um, given how decimated their leverage was at that point. The Wolves did okay. I mean... (laughs) No, I, I agree, but let me ask. If they had done that the same trade two months ago... Isn't it easier to get guys like Wiggins and Towns to buy into the new version of whatever you're selling? Like, hey, we're entering the season with a clean slate. Jimmy's out. He was, he was the problem. Yeah. Now we're going forward with this group. If you do it after all of that mess, you've got guys like Towns and Wiggins saying, like, what the heck is going on here? Why is our organization letting Jimmy call us out on an ESPN nationally televised interview? Like, this is chaos. This is not how it's supposed to be. And that's why I think it wasn't just about the terms of the trade. It was about the manner of the trade. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think that Tibbs sticking his head in the sand for three or four months this summer and refusing to kind of confront the impasse that his franchise was headed toward regardless. Because even if Jimmy hadn't demanded a trade, he was still an impending free agent, and the ceiling in Minnesota was relatively low. I mean, they weren't really going to do anything. Um, and so, I, it, absolutely, he should have seen that coming. And and that's one of maybe six or seven different reasons it made sense to fire him. Um, I think what I meant when I talked about the way he deals with the rest of the organization and, and the way he deals with fans is... I think that buys you a little bit more margin for error, and and that's what Tibbs needed. Because I think even with all the valid criticisms you can make of of the way he's handled things up there, you could also still say, like, this is probably the best coach the Wolves have had in the last 10 years. Well, careful now. Don't disrespect Rick Adelman. Let's be nice. No, I'm serious. that's a that's a Blazers legend, Chemeketa Community College legend now. So let's let's well, be careful. Well, good there. for I, I him. Put, <laughs> I put Rick. I mean, career win totals, success in multiple spots. I'd still put Rick over Tibbs. I I would just say that I think that the uh, how do I put this? I I, I don't want to be mean, but I, I like the Wolves have kind of seemed like a bullshit franchise for most of their existence in Minnesota. No, they're and, a backwater. You can say that. Yeah. They're, an NBA, they're an NBA backwater that nobody really wants to play in. I mean, exactly. Can just say nobody that. wants to play for, and that, and they're also, they, they don't necessarily have a, a culture that kind of promotes playing hard and, and, and giving a damn. I mean, and it's not just being in a small market. They just really haven't had their act together for most of their existence. And, uh, and I think Tibbs, professionalized things in a way that he probably will never get credit for because he screwed up in so many other areas. Um, but uh, I, I guess... Oh, I agree. And to build on that, yeah, I don't think Glenn Taylor should be crushed for giving Tibbs the president and the coaching job. Like, if he hadn't done that, if you had just tried to sell that coaching job by itself, think about the quality of candidates that you would have had available to you, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... That's down there with like the Phoenix Suns of the world where you're just trying to like hire these first time assistants, you know, to, to bring in as your coach and just do it on the cheap and hope it works. Right. Like that was sort of the, the position they were going to be in as a franchise. So uh, I don't fault him at all. I think it was a reasonable risk to see if Thibodeau could, uh, you know, translate his clear vision of, you know, defense first basketball into roster building. Right. Um it just didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. And in retrospect, we really should have seen that failure coming, I think. I mean, even when he signed, and it's it's crazy to think back to that, that summer where Tibbs was the hottest 
name on the market. And I mean, the reason he was able to negotiate that dual role was because he was like easily the most coveted coach in basketball for two years. And, and he had his pick of jobs. Um, and it's, it's kind of surreal to think of how quickly that has changed. But, uh, even when he, even when he signed and we found out that he was going to be president of basketball operations and kind of splitting GM duties with Scott Layden, that was a detail where I think a lot of people were uneasy, um, and, and, figured that it would end badly eventually. I think if there's a surprise here, it's how quickly it ended badly. Wait, can I ask you a question though real quick? Do yeah. you think Minnesota would rather be mediocre and polite or, or you know, like just welcome company mm-hmm. rather than good and jerks? Because I don't you feel like his personality was so big there where like it almost made like everybody else feel kind of guilty by association and like, Timberwolves to me, they just strike me as this franchise that if they can go, if they can win forty games, and you know, not anger anyone, they'll they're happy. They'll call it a day. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I don't know about that. I I would say that you can't be as much of an asshole as Thibodeau seemed to be and not win forty five or fifty games. I think he was not even at that like mean and good level he was mean and mediocre and that's why i think a lot of fans got sick of him and um and that's part of the reason they made this move is because tibbs was wildly unpopular and keeping him around kind of cast this pall over the franchise for a little while and um i think you can definitely quibble with the way this was handled by the wolves and i wrote about that today i think the timing is really stupid because the team in in Minnesota that post Jimmy Butler was actually starting to do some things and it's just not necessarily in the best interest of the players there to turn everything upside down again uh, two months after Jimmy Butler left and then they're probably going to have to look for another coach in May or unless Ryan Saunders is the the new Brad Stevens but it's just all of this is kind of crazy to do on the fly but yeah in- the timing there doesn't really bother me, to be honest, but I can understand why it would bother a lot of people. It's like, I mean, to me, he was a dead man walking as soon as that second trade finally happened. He had lost the power struggle with Jimmy. He wasn't able to keep him in the fold. Yeah. So he was gone eventually. I just They think- probably should have just, they should have done it immediately, I think is your point, which I would have been fine with that, but I would rather do it today then wait another two months for no reason. Yeah, I would rather do it today if they if we knew that Ryan Saunders was definitely the interim coach, and then they were going to conduct like a thorough search for the the coach to kind of guide Cat through his prime. But this seems like more of a half-assed wolf strategy, where Glenn Taylor came out yesterday and said, you know, we're going to give Ryan Saunders every opportunity to show he can be our head coach, and it's like. I don't know what you're really going to learn in 42 games, and particularly if the playoffs are the goal. Like, it's just going to be really tough for them to gauge, and they're going to be in limbo all over again at the end of the year. They should have just fired Tibbs in September is, I guess, my my predominant point here. Um, no, I, I'm with you. Hey, the reason why I asked you about the whole, like, you know, polite and mediocre versus good and jerkish is I'm trying to spin this forward on behalf of Thibodeau. Yeah. If I was his agent, you know, kind of trying to pitch him to future, you know, pr- prospective employers, this would be my take. And, and tell me what you think of this, okay? Yes. My, yeah. ta- my, ta- my take would be Jimmy Butler was right. The whole organization was soft. The only two dogs in the whole organization were Tibbs and Jimmy. <laughs> Everybody else didn't care enough about winning. 
Wiggins didn't. Towns never improved on defense in the first couple of years. The ownership wasn't, you know, completely committed to, uh, you know, like trying to win and letting Tibbs focus on basketball. They were always trying to get him to go eat corn dogs at the Minnesota State Fair. This is just, you know, a second-rate organization that didn't really realize uh, what it takes to win at a high level in the NBA. Thibodeau was doing that before them. During his first season when Jimmy was healthy, they were winning at a very high level playing Thibodeau's way. Yeah, uh, He was able to you know get an offense that was top five in the league with three guys that didn't really mesh that well together in, in Wiggins, Towns, and, and Butler. They were able to kind of cut against the grain a little bit uh, in terms of how they played. And um, that would be my pitch. Do you think that could work? Or is, is his uh, future prospects uh, looking a little dark for a couple of years? I don't <laughs> It's, it's going to be a couple years. I think things are going to have to thaw at post post wolves. I didn't sell you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I that would I'm sure be part of the pitch, and you could make this a Glenn Taylor problem instead of a Tibbs problem. But uh, I just here's the main thing: Tibbs's strength and and his signature as a coach is coaching elite defenses, and um, I it's unclear whether his his argument would have to be that cat was just so soft that things were never going to click in minnesota and if you give me another chance i'm going to go build the best defense in the league i just don't know if he still has those skills and if and if i guess more accurately if if the skills he has are still relevant in today's league because things are so supercharged there's a little chip kelly vibe to it it's yeah and it's a bummer because i love chip kelly and i loved pete tibbs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just mean by that, like, the what was the best practices in 2009 might not be the best practices totally. in 2019. Yeah, right? it's tough. But anyways, that's enough, Tibbs. But first, Ben, today's show is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. This is a non-intimidating way for newcomers to dip their toes into the stock market waters for the first time with true confidence. It's simple. It's intuitive. It has a clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Ben, tell me a little bit more about Robinhood. Well, Andrew, I can tell you're listening to my advice because I told you last week, emphasize the no (laughs) commissions. Emphasize that commission-free, baby. That's what it's all about. You nailed it on this read because that's the most important part, right? Robinhood is just saying, look, if you want to trade stocks, you don't have to worry about other brokerages charging you up to $10 for every single trade. Andrew, that's just skimming off the top. There's no reason for that. Robinhood doesn't charge you commission fees. So when you're trading stocks, you get to keep all of your profits. Of course, the app is super easy to use, very well organized, like I've told you guys 5,000 times. If you don't know that by now, you're not paying close enough attention. The, The app is so simple. Tap, 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 boom, you've made your trade. If you want to get a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, we're talking blue chippers, the blue bubble gang, to build your portfolio, just go to floor.robinhood.com. That's floor.robinhood.com. Go today. I think at this point, only about 25% of our listeners have any idea what we're talking about when we say blue bubble gang, but everyone should go to floor.robinhood.com. That's floor.robinhood.com. Get yourself a free stock. But moving on to Jack, who says, so 
Who is truly the better scorer? Is it James Harden or is it Kevin Durant? I mean, I think until, you know, two years ago, I would have said KD case closed. Yep. Um, Harden has improved a lot as a scorer. I mean, he started out amazing, but every single year, these tricks that infuriate his critics, uh, he just comes back with more and more of them, whether it's the double tap, step, you know, the step back, whether it's the swipe through holding the ball strong with both hands so that he can absorb the contact and finish through you, whether it's the quick jerk up movement where, you know, he catches you, you know, leaning forward on the drives and, and draws the fouls that way. The guy is just a student of scoring. And that's one reason why I've appreciated him so much, even though he's worn down in, in certain playoff situations, even though, you know, his way, quote unquote, uh, hasn't always worked. Uh, I think that he is the most improved scorer I've seen mid-career ever. You know, I don't know who else would be on that conversation. I mean, the only other guy that comes to mind is LeBron in terms of how he really built out his three-point shot. But, you know, to me, Harden, you know, if you're talking about a one-on-one player to get a bucket. I think it's it's harder to deal with Harden at this point than it is to deal with LeBron. So, uh, wow, I don't know. I, that I can't, is crazy I can't... to say out loud. You're not wrong, probably, but man, no, it's, but I mean, it's wild to think about it that way. They're, and they're both two of the best playmakers, arguably the two best playmakers with the pass, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about one-on-one, I mean, there's no question Harden's handle is superior. Yep. There's no question his three-point shot to me it's superior. Uh, he can create shots in in every way. Uh, he gets left no matter what you do against him. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think that he's probably a better technical scorer, a more complete technical scorer right now uh, than Kevin Durant. I think the strongest argument on behalf of Durant would just be the height factor in that he can get a really high percentage look from anywhere on the court within the offense without really having to work hard for it. You know, if you just throw it to him on the block, yeah. he can turn around and have a higher percentage look than Harden can get. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I think I'd go hard. And what it, about you? It's crazy to think about, man. I mean, first of all, bringing LeBron into the conversation also, and, and you could also bring Steph into the conversation. And, and Harden, if you're talking about a regular season game, um, I think he is superior to all of them. And and that's I don't well, mean to wait, damn him hold with faint praise there. but so, so clarify that for me. Are we saying, when we're saying better score, are we saying one-on-one or are we saying better scoring threat within a five-man context or what definition are we playing with? Because I guess I was looking at this as a one-on-one type situation. Yeah, and one-on-one, I think he wins. But also the way I was thinking about it is just in terms of sheer volume and, uh, and the ability to get 35 night after night after night after night. And I think what sets him apart is and you talked about it his body is so i mean he's he's big and durable and he can absorb contact and that's what one of the things with the foul drawing controversy that seems to surround him wherever he goes i mean he does have it's a it's a real skill to be able to initiate as much contact as he does and bounce back up and bounce through the regular season without getting hurt without slowing down and i think that's one area where he has a huge advantage over Steph Curry, a player that I think everybody seems to agree is better than Harden. Um, but I mean, look, if you if you really break it down, like Steph misses three and four weeks at least once a year. And, and that's just the way it is at this point. And every playoff season, he's a little banged up. And Harden doesn't seem to have that problem. And, um, and I think that power also sort of 
helps him in the conversation when we're, when we're looking at like the best one-on-one scorer in the league. He he can kind of bang his way into the into the lane for easy looks, and then he can also create the step back threes at will which is its own kind of insanity like how Mm-mm-mm. how routine that shot has become for him i don't hold, know hold man. on a second hold on a second you're in houston did you spend the day at joel osteen's mega church this, <laughs> andrew do you know what this really sounds like to me right now and what? i know this is what it sounds like to all the rockets fans out there who have been so mad at you about your James Harden hate for the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. This sounds an awful lot like a come-to-Jesus moment, No, it? no, it's not. But we should talk about kind of the bigger picture with Harden, so sure, let's talk about it, okay? You have branded me a James Harden hater. Oh, I branded you. You branded yourself, Andrew. You've been proud to wear that mantle. You have worn. You would have put it, made a jersey, oh, a custom jersey, boy. and worn that. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the thing. Okay, I think that there's a difference between objective truths about Harden, which ob- objectively he is one of the four best players in the NBA and probably the most dominant offensive player in the NBA. And I think we just all have to be very honest about that. And then you get into kind of qualitative assertions with him where, I don't know, I mean, I think you can still say that, like, aesthetically, his game lacks... um, his game lacks imagination that Steph Curry's doesn't. And, and and even Durant, like watching Durant and Steph score is more enjoyable than watching Harden for me because Harden, it's like the same kind of three or four moves. He's like a, a kid who has found a, a way to beat the video game and will just run the same play over and over and over again. And that's fine, um, but it's not as much fun as watching some other guys. So that's where I have traditionally protested that and the foul drawing bullshit it's just i mean come on like that's just awful to watch and then the the other thing that i think is is also really interesting with him is he just hasn't been as effective in the playoffs and and that's another objective truth that i i think some people tend to fight on twitter no 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 (laughs) but he's been better than you've suggested i mean we've argued about that for a long time well yes and you've tried to sell him out as like this horrible choker and like not only is he not that but in a lot of cases, he's been a one-man guy. It's not been one-on-one or five-on-five. Like, for a couple of years there, it was one or two-on-five. Yeah. Uh, and in certain situations, like, the the big concern for me is the workload because he loves the workload. He loves just dribbling the ball for 20, 20 seconds, rocking you to sleep, play after play after play after play. And if there's any knock on him, it's, it's to me – does he see the big picture? Does he realize that all of those reps uh, you know chasing 40 points in December are going to be catching up to him in May? Yeah, and I, I watched him against the Nuggets tonight, and the he, he played, I believe, the entire fourth quarter, and the Rockets were up 10 or 15 the, oh, through the final minutes. Jokic was on the bench. I, I mean, Denver had basically thrown in the towel. And Harden's still out there, kind of running pick and rolls and hitting guys in the corners and patting his assist numbers. And I'm just like, I, I don't know whether that's Harden or D'Antoni, but it seems like a bad idea. And they've done it that way for the last couple seasons. And um, I also think it's a cop-out to say that it's his workload and that's the reason he's struggled in the playoffs. Um, but so it goes. I mean, reasonable people can disagree there. 
Well, it's definitely the number one factor. And the number two factor would be sort of the quality of competition, right? Well, I, mean, I think that's part of it. But also the way he's officiated like, changes. And, and that removes one of the weapons in his arsenal. And, and that really does affect him. Um, and it, I mean, it, it changes some. I mean, it doesn't radically change. I don't, it's not like night and day. I mean, it, it, it modifies. But I also look back, like the last couple of teams he's lost to, those Spurs led by Kawhi, the Warriors who have beaten him multiple times, like he's – his team is clearly the underdog in those series. Well, and wait a second. No, no matter what you say, he was clearly the best player on his team in those series. So this is funny because it's, it reminds me of a year ago when I rarely respond to the open floor emails um, and rarely will kind of take the bait and get into an argument with people. But somebody sent me like the smuggest email about a year, year and a half ago kind of hating on me, questioning my intelligence for buying into the idea that Harden struggles in the playoffs. And so I went back and forth and got pretty heated for a minute there. Um, And so I can't resist. Like, you you go back to that Spurs series. First of all, it wasn't Kawhi's Spurs. Kawhi missed the game that Harden completely no-showed and to the point where everybody was wondering whether he was sick or hurt or something. I mean, like... There have been no, some know, really Andrew, low you're, moments. You're judging his whole postseason based on that lowest moment. You're not giving him no. credit for the 40-plus points against Utah. You're not giving him credit for his other I moments just wish where we he's could beaten. Be... <laughs> I... No, we, 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 look, do you believe he could be the best player on a title team right now? I mean, you're yes. telling me he's the best scorer. So there you go. Yeah. That's, that's all we're saying. And I, a year ago, no matter what you want to try to rewrite the, the story, a year ago you would not have said that. No, a year ago I would have said that if the Warriors have have one or two bad injuries, Houston's going to win the title. So for that reason, and it's the same reason I said, man, come on, this is some grease pig stuff, man. I'm sorry. Like you would not have said that you, you were really, really down on Harden for years, man. That's why the people were so mad at you. No, I just wish we could be honest about Harden. I wish because we are being honest about Harden. He's the best scorer. It's really interesting in the NBA in that he is like, unparalleled in the regular season and then there are real questions when you get to the playoffs and and that to me is is not true of the other three guys in the top four and that's part of what makes Harden such a paradox or an enigma he's the best scorer in the NBA who you just said could be the best player on a title team if that's what we're being honest about Harden we have nothing to argue about but I you were not making those claims uh, 12 months ago that's all I'm saying I, I I don't I really don't think that that's true. I, I have to be honest with you. It's fine. I think that, like, because that, that whole can he be the best player on a title team question is always kind of a bullshit question. I think Dirk is the one who invalidated that question for the rest of time because it was just a dumb talking point. And so I think it's I think it's a legit question. Like, look at Jokic right now. Do you think Jokic could be the best player on a title team? I mean, look what happened. You were there tonight. I mean, Harden has 30-plus. Chris Paul's not even out there. Chris Paul's going to be sniping from the mid-range over uh, Jokic, just like he sniped from the mid-range over Gobert in the playoffs. Yeah. And then Clint Capella goes for 30-plus because he's a vertical threat that you know Jokic can't really handle. I mean, I think that's a very legitimate question to track here you know, based on Jokic, Jokic's uh, you know, defensive ceiling. Can he be the best player on a title team? Like, if I compare him to other players who are in that same mix, whether it's like an Anthony Davis or uh, a Joel Embiid, like the guys who we would say are fighting for first-team All-NBA spots, I could see those guys as being the best player on a title team before I could see a player like Jokic. Yeah, um, and 
I think that that's it. It's it's always hard to talk about the Nuggets after a Nuggets Rockets game because they just don't match up well with them, and there's it. Jokic never looks more incomplete than when he's playing the Rockets, and and it's a tough look. Um, but but that's who he's gonna have to beat once he gets to the playoffs. And like that was the same thing with Harden. He's like he doesn't play. This was the argument about Harden for years. He doesn't play defense. His style dries up in the playoffs. He's not as efficient. He gets tired. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't get the foul call. So therefore, he's all he's facts a, a for zero. right now. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. This is that's that's the naysayers' argument, which I'm saying was not true last year. They were pretty darn close to winning the title. And it's not true this year. Yeah. Well, he's unbelievable and for the last couple of weeks has been on another planet. And I mean, even even tonight against the Nuggets, I mean, the Nuggets were sort of trapping him, trying to get the ball out of his hands. And he was doing a good job finding open shooters. And uh, so that's why guys like Gerald Green and P.J. Tucker went off and had big nights in addition to Capella. But then there was yeah, this little four or five minute stretch at the end of the second quarter where – he made Jamal Murray fall, but then he, I think that sort of like flipped a switch with him where he just got really confident and spent the next couple minutes taking 30-foot step backs and draining them in ver- in the face of various Nuggets defenders. And um, it's just, it's incredible how easy he makes it look. And it's inc- He's been doing it every night for three straight years yeah it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see i'm glad you found jesus because it's a beautiful thing to watch yeah well it, it's uh it's certainly interesting it's it's like nothing else in the nba um anyways moving Wait, on. real quick though is he your mvp or Giannis still um i would say Giannis. i think that he may be the favorite though right i mean coming off that warriors game that was sort of like Harden's Heisman moment, and maybe that's it, that's coming too soon, but it's hard for anybody to forget that highlight at this point in the year. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm impressed by your restraint because you started with Giannis, and I was worried you were going to go down to Houston and get kind of brainwashed like I did. Um, I still think it's Giannis because Harden was pretty slow to start this season. I mean, yeah. it took him a little while to ramp up, and obviously Houston's record reflected that as well. Giannis came out of the gate roaring, and he's still roaring. And to me, that consistency is the tiebreaker at this point. Now, if Harden continues to play like he's been playing here for the last you know, two or three weeks, and he just keeps that going through the end of the regular season, which he's definitely capable of doing, his argument's going to be very strong. He's probably going to win based on momentum. But I think in terms of consistency and team impact right now, I would still say Giannis should be viewed as the MVP favorite, even though the odds makers and I think most of the consensus does not agree with me. Yeah, there's no question um, that if he keeps this up, there's just no argument really because he's he's averaging like 35 and 12 or 13. And you, I mean, Chris Paul is going to come back and things are going to start to normalize a little bit and Harden will come back from outer space uh, just because he won't have to be that great every night. But right now, when you watch this Rockets team, it's like Harden pitching it out to Austin Rivers and Gerald Green and Daniel House and somehow it's working because he just puts that much stress on any defense he faces. And uh, it's pretty wild. That's that's all I can say. That's another thing to track, though, real quick with Paul. I mean, if he comes back, you know, is he going to be just a role player? Like, is his whole job going to change? Is it not going to be this, like, two-headed monster maybe, where there was this balance? Maybe, and maybe that's a healthier place for him to be. Yeah, that, that's sort of what I was getting at. It's like, 
maybe just ramp down even more than what he was trying to do earlier in the season and just say, you know what, just be like 60% of the guy you were last year rather than, you know, 85 or 90%, whatever, yeah. you know, age-related decline is in there. You just, you know, go ahead and, and just basically turn him into a spot-up shooter on offense. I the Worst things could happen for Houston's offense. Yeah, I like that approach. Um, but moving on to the Lakers, Jake says, should the Lakers be active this upcoming trade deadline? If so, what are the short-term and long-term ramifications of acting now rather than waiting? Brandon Ingram is looking really wobbly and, in my opinion, not worth holding on to. I feel like his value is decreasing day by day. Ben, what do you think? This is It's time for kind of an emotional reckoning for me, I believe. Ingram <laughs> did have a really nice night tonight. I think had we done the podcast earlier in, in the day, Monday, it, it could have gotten super dark. Um, Ingram came back and had, I think, 27 and 10 against the Mavs in a, a good road win for the young Lakers. But uh, it's still, okay. it's still he, tough. He, he had 29 and 3, okay? okay. Um, first, thing, <laughs> first things first, though, with Ingram. Gave him a couple uh, extra rebounds. What can I say? You know, he got called out by Luke Walton, and he responded. Yes. You know, I mean, that's Luke was trying really hard not to call his guys out after the most recent loss in LA they go on the road get blown out by Thibodeau's team in Thibodeau's last game <laughs> the Timberwolves fire their coach and then finally Luke's like you know what I probably got to call out Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball to ask him <laughs> to step up a little bit and Ingram did I will say though I think there's got to be an asterisk on his 29 points because all season long Ingram has really kind of struggled when he's in that face-up role trying to go to the basket finishing through contact getting open layups and, and trying to like you know get through the defense and really just finish those plays like he should and like he probably will in two or three years once he really has his full strength yeah but that Dallas defense with DeAndre Jordan in the middle man that was just like he could have just been driving an 18-wheel truck down the paint to finish <laughs> I mean there was no there was no finishing through contact there might have been finishing through some wind as like DeAndre Jordan was waving at him but that's about it yeah um but overall the Brandon Ingram experience as sort of this lead ball handler has not gone very well and neither has the Lonzo Ball experience with him taking on more touches uh, with LeBron out. Both those guys have shown real limitations. And it got me wondering, like, how good is any team's offense going to be if, like, that's their main playmaker or ball handler? Yep. And, you know, I really like Lonzo just a lot more in a secondary role offensively where he can use his craftiness and his touch passes and the cutting stuff to help his teammates find success rather than trying to be charged with, creating the success himself and you know same thing goes for ingram i do want to stand up for your nephew on one point though andrew uh -huh. because he's had a really rough go here <laughs> yes. the guy the guy works incredibly hard i get to stable center sometime like hours and hours before the game just so i can avoid the traffic and he is out there every game without fail and he gets a good sweat in before the game i mean it's all not, i don't want to say kobe-esque in terms of like his routine but he works really hard before games I think one concern that's bubbling up here in LA though, it's like, are these guys working hard or are they working smart, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is he really filling in the gaps of his game or is he trying to, you know, play a certain way, focusing on the mid range and the pull-ups and the stuff that really ultimately isn't that valuable? Because I'd like to see him take a step forward as a uh, three-point shooter, whether it's off the dribble or just in catch and shoot situations. And I'd really like to see him make a lot more progress as a finisher around the basket. 
And both those areas have just been pretty lacking here lately. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And actually, a couple things. First of all, the DeAndre Jordan point, it reminds me of what I think is my favorite NBA comparison I've seen this year. And it came from uh, my Mavs friend, Kirk, at Kirk Serious Face on Twitter. Go follow him. He's a delightful follow during Mavs games because you get to watch him lose his mind and rant about Harrison Barnes and Wes Matthews and lash out at basically everyone who's not Luka Doncic. It's fantastic. But on DeAndre, at one point, he he compared him to John McCain because he refuses to ever raise his arms and contest shots at the rim. Oh, come <laughs> which on. was pretty amazing. Um, that's, that's not appropriate for a family audience. Oh, Andrew. Come boy. On. Uh, as far as the Ingram point, though, and the difference between working hard and working smart, I think that's a really smart question to highlight because that's been – my takeaway um i mean look ingram has really struggled and and the game that i watched over the weekend was lakers knicks where ingram was just sort of driving to nowhere possession after possession he couldn't get clean looks at the rim and he didn't really have a plan and uh and neither did the lakers because then lonzo would take over and would get into the lane and not really be looking to attack and would heave it out and turn the ball over his, his own self and it was just really frustrating to watch and ingram in particular i mean look he's someone i absolutely loved coming into the draft and i think one of the biggest mysteries is that three-point shooting because the reason everybody loved him as an NBA prospect was because he was a pretty good shooter at Duke. He shot five threes a game, and I forget what the percentage was, but it was in the high 30s or low 40s. And um, and that part of his game has not only not materialized in the NBA, but it's regressed to the point where now he's this non-shooter that we, we talk about as if he's kind of like, Giannis or Ben Simmons light and he's he's what makes him special is his ability to create and get to the rim and yada 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 but like that's not the player he was supposed to be so it's really frustrating and um and I'm sure it's frustrating no. for him and part of it to no. me I think has to be on the Lakers because I, I wonder like whether they're just not emphasizing the the right parts of development I don't know yeah, it's strange because think about how much more valuable it is to be able to hit a three-pointer off the dribble than it is to be able to hit a 15-footer yeah. off the dribble. And that's what—that's the shot that he wants every time. He wants to use the screen, take one or two dribbles, and, and go to that pull-up from the elbow or from like one step in, right? And it's just like teams are probably going to give you that, and you're still not really going to be good enough to beat them even in the regular season. But during the playoffs, that's never going to work. So, like, where is this heading, right? Like, right. You're, you're you're progressing on a track that's, like, about to run into a brick wall. Like, just try a different track and well, and, and, and see what happens there. The other thing I wonder about, I mean, Ingram, particularly when LeBron's not there, but even going back to last year, like, he he – run sets that the Lakers have him in that are like superstar sets and they're basically asking him to be and expecting him to be this superstar in waiting and um and maybe that's not the best thing for him either like if you think about what he would be asked to do had he been traded to San Antonio this year I bet you a million dollars the Spurs would have simplified his role and and given him a couple jobs to do on every possession 
that are much more productive than putting him at the top of the key and asking him to go be great. And it seems like that's what the Lakers do a lot of the time with Ingram. And it's, it's really frustrating to watch because it doesn't serve him or the team or whatever. And, um, and Andrew, I'm going to need you to go back to the front desk of the hotel and tell those guys you're going to need this room all night because if you're going to continue <laughs> to wax on about James Harden's unbelievable scoring ability and the San Antonio Spurs player development. I mean, let's just do a 14-hour podcast. Why is this going to end? But don't you think all- that's a valid question? I mean, look, and maybe this is just me, proud uncle of Brandon Ingram, trying to shift the blame here. But I do wonder whether he would be better served with a smarter coaching staff. Um, I I, th- I thought that Luke would see what we're talking about yeah. because he's coming from Golden State where they realize – you know exactly the the quote unquote right way to play modern basketball and Ingram run the way they're using him runs counter to so much of what uh, you know Golden State had done right and and so whether you want to say it's a Spurs comparison or a Warriors comparison it just has not unfolded uh, like I thought I also think just you know to put some back on Ingram yeah like if he had an extra 15 pounds of muscle he would be a completely different player that was right? my thought and watching so, him against the Knicks is like he's going to the rim and getting pushed around by Mario Hazonia and Luke Cornett and all these random people who are barely in the NBA and it's like man I, we're in year three here how is this still happening yeah well I do hate to say I warned you about some of these things but I did <laughs> you did uh, you were right to a degree I was I guess here's here's why I was so bullish on Ingram is and first of all I was right about Ben Simmons so it all evens out but no, um, no, Ben Simmons is by the way Ben Simmons is still a lot better than Donovan Mitchell uh, that's one thing that I have not harped on nearly enough yeah. it's like if you want to say Simmons isn't where he was last year that's fine Mitchell is not anywhere Mitchell near is really struggling too where he was last year but continue um Ingram the reason I believed is because number one, I, I did think that he was about to take a step forward as a three point shooter, which obviously would change a lot of this conversation. Um, but also, I mean, look, he, he had a couple weeks last year where he was playing on ball and essentially acting as the Lakers point guard. And it did really look good. And and it finally looked like he had found a role that made a lot of sense for him where he was going to average 18, seven and seven. And that was the player he was going to be. And um, and that even that version of him is kind of fading now, where now he's just scoring a lot of empty calorie points, and um, it's not clear what his what his best game even looks like. And I, I don't think the Lakers know, um, and it and it shows. And so I, I guess to to tie it all back, then the question then is. If you're the Lakers, do you hold out hope that Anthony Davis is going to be able to leverage his way to L.A. this summer and thus hold on to Ingram, or do you consider dealing him early to go and try and steal someone like Bradley Beal? Uh, I would hang on to Ingram. I think sort of our argument at the beginning of the season was you are saying I had Ingram 25 spots too low on the top 100 and I was like look I I believe in your vision of him I just think it's going to take a year or two to sort of get there yeah and and I think I at that point brought in the Wiggins comparison where like you know if this is sort of his mentality and his body type like the progress you're expecting for say from year two to year three might not be as much as you're hoping for right Uh um I still think his ceiling is very very high like when you were talking about the Spurs my eyes lit up you know I'm thinking wow like Ingram on the Spurs could be an absolute savage like he could be an incredible player within two years and and very very effective and very modern 
Uh, so if I was the Lakers, I would not be racing to trade him. Yeah. Uh, well, I still view thing. I view a guy like Beal as like a second tier type star, and I think How that their you. whole mentality. So I mean, it's true. It's actually kind of it's kind kind of polite of me, <laughs> frankly, know. but potentially generous there. But continue. Um, they need to be in alpha star mode, hunting only, because if they don't get an alpha star. LeBron is not going to be competing with the Warriors, right? right. So, like, they they have to be well, thinking as short term as possible. And if the backup option is, like we've mentioned earlier, like trying to sign Chris Middleton in free agency or trying to trade for Bradley Beal, I don't think that that is in the franchise. It's sort of like splitting the difference in a negative way, where it's like they should be going all out for the stars. If they miss there, I'd almost just run it back with the young guys and hope that you're the team that benefits from their progress. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I I do think that you're right, and that's the the smart way to play it. Where I begin to wonder, though, is not because his value is going to decrease, because I think a lot of teams are going to be able to talk themselves into Ingram's upside for all the reasons you mentioned. Um, But if you're the Lakers, I think you can start to see the Warriors splintering and start selling yourself on this being the final year of Golden State dominance. And so then like the bar that you have to clear to get into that title conversation next season is going to be lower. And then you have to start being realistic about like what targets are actually out there that could, that could realistically end up in LA. And, uh, and that's a tougher question because if it's not going to be Anthony Davis, I don't really know who it is. And then you have to start looking at trade targets. And, like, if Beal is stolen by the Raptors, let's say, the Raptors are a team that should absolutely be trying to trade for Bradley Beal um, and, or some other sort of, like, half-assed contender like that, then where does that leave the Lakers? And, and what, well, are, what are their mean, backup so, plans? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that... I mean, they're really riding the Anthony Davis train. To me, it's almost like <laughs> yeah, it's almost Anthony Davis or bust at this point. And I think that, and I don't know if it has up. to be that way. And if it's if and if yeah. it's Anthony Davis or bust, I if I were working for the Lakers, I would look at them and say, look, guys, there is not a chance in hell New Orleans is going to turn around and give us Anthony Davis. It's just not going to happen. It would be a horrible look for them, PR wise. Everybody in the NBA resents us. And if all things are equal, we're going to get screwed. And, like, all things are going to be equal because Ingram isn't going to trump any offers. And so then I would start to take a look around. I hear you. I think you're getting a little too dark on that, though, for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is kind of rock bottom for the Lakers season right now. There were a lot of moments earlier this season and not that long ago when LeBron was out there with the young guys yeah. where they were really onto something, right? Like, the ceiling was was really, really interesting maybe not contender ready, maybe like, you know, fantastic, like run to the conference finals. And, you know, you, you go out maybe in five games once you get there, like as their ceiling, but far better than I expected they were going to be in year one. Right. So the argument to sort of let those guys germinate, I think is fairly strong, sort of under LeBron's guidance. He covers up so many of their flaws. They wind up looking pretty good when he's out there. That'd be point number one. Point number two was, and I know you saw Gail Benson's quote because I sent it to you. But Gail Benson is the the owner of the Pelicans after her husband passed away is singing a much different tune than Alvin Gentry. The you know management and coaching staff <laughs> and the ownership group are not on the same page Andrew when it comes to Anthony Davis because Alvin Gentry you will remember was saying we're not trading 
Anthony Davis for Beyonce. Yes. We're not trading him for anybody. Gail Benson said, well, if Anthony Davis wants to go, we're not going to stop him. That, that's what she said. There is a big difference between we're not trading you for, for Beyonce and, <laughs> oh, you're not happy? No problem. We'll just get rid of you, right? Yeah. I mean, here's what she so said. To me, if- I just pulled up the I pulled up the quote you sent me, and she's talking about the the Pelicans here, and she says, "I think they're young, and we're going to invest more money and get the big players and do everything we can to keep Anthony here. <laughs> I really like what we have in place. I really like Anthony, but if he wants to leave, you can't hold him back. I always keep in touch with people that we lose, like Benjamin Watson, <laughs> ex Saint." When he left, I kept in touch with him, and now he's back. And then you understand it. Adrian Peterson, too. A lot of people that left, I don't ever hold grudges with people. Even as angry, well, it wasn't so much angry, but I was disappointed with Adrian's family, but I don't wish anybody harm. And look, this just sounds like somebody who, first of all, cares 10 times more about the Saints. No, Andrew, there are so many takeaways from that. You nailed the first one, which is she really cares about football. I'm sure her husband really cared about football. And remember, they stepped in as a family to to buy the Pelicans. Yeah. Basically, so the franchise wouldn't move, almost as like a favor to the community, right? Mm-hmm. So this is not their like driving passion. But second, uh, can she name a player on the team besides Anthony Davis? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was my other I takeaway. Mean, honestly. I don't know if she's been to more than five Pelicans games in the last two years, um, which, you know, it's fine to each his own. Red flag. And then the third thing, She's going to get the quote-unquote big players. Andrew, how is she going to do that? We've been watching this team not get the big players for years and scramble and throw together you know, a fairly strange trade to try to go get a DeMarcus Cousins and to overpay lots and lots of guys to try to just keep them down there. There's no going to get the big players. Okay. I mean, that just, to me, it sounded like, I mean, no disrespect to her. She sounded like a very nice person, but it just sounded like a delusional perspective in terms of where the franchise is on the roadmap i don't know it's it sounds like she's just made peace with it and it's like yeah that's fine i'm still a billionaire if he leaves i'm royalty in new orleans for life so i'm good um so then if i'm the lakers aren't you just calling gail direct (laughs) well so that actually talking about this in the context of the lakers that quote would concern me because this these aren't people who who care that much about basketball so screwing the Lakers may be one of the only priorities they come to the table with when, when it's time to actually listen to Anthony Davis offers. They may just say, look, we know these assholes from L.A. have been tampering with our superstar for the last 18 months, and God knows what the clutch sports relationship is. So look, <laughs> the Lakers are off the table and not in this conversation. We will listen to every other offer out there. I, to me, I'm, that seems like a plausible fl- timeline. It is, but I'm going to flip it the other way, Andrew. If I'm Rich Paul, I'm buying up all the advertising signage in the Mercedes-Benz <laughs> Superdome, right? I'm just making clutch sports banners. I'm just making sure that those checks go directly to Gail so she realizes what kind of a business partner and potential business partner clutch sports can be for her. Yeah, well, look, if if nothing else, the Lakers shouldn't trade Brandon Ingram because it will be a lot more entertaining to see how this plays out in July. And uh, Hey, uh, uh, one more serious question, though. If you're Anthony Davis and you've been playing 100% by the book here, right? Uh-huh. Like, he has not made any noise about being unhappy. The only thing he'll say is he wants to win a title and the legacy stuff. It's actually been really, re- really impressive. And it, let me just say, before you continue, I mean, it's 
we're in this new era of sports where no one really cares about who's loyal. And, and if Anthony Davis were to come out and say, trade me, everybody would kind of applaud him and say he deserves a better franchise, which he does. Um, but it's yeah, also been finally. really cool to watch him kind of like not buy into any of this and, and care about his teammates and care about the city of New Orleans and try to sort of make this work while he's still there. Yeah, it's a great point. It's been very cool to see, and it's been confounding because you're just like, Anthony, why? It's like this guy <laughs> who's who's like so happy at like a community college when, you know, the Ivy Leagues well, are, are beckoning. Well, look, they you. won four of six. Alfred Payton is healthy. I don't know. They can make a little eighth seed run here. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, I'm just – my real question for you, though, is when you read her comments, how does that make you feel? Like, does it make you feel happy that she seems open-minded and that – She's interested in your best interest. Does it make you feel almost snubbed? Like, because there's no way some of the owners of these superstar players would ever make that kind of a comment publicly, right? Like, would the Rockets owners ever say that about James Harden? Would the Warriors owner ever say that about Steph Curry? No. I, I don't know, man. I read. How would you take it? My reaction is that this is how I would behave if I were a billionaire. <laughs> because I, I would not be Dan Gilbert out there, like, holding grudges. Like, if some athlete wants to leave my team, that's fine. It's uh, My life is still great. We're going to survive. And so shout out to Gail Benson. She's got the right attitude, and she doesn't take this as seriously as like idiots like Gilbert or Joe Lacob or whatever. And uh, and I think she's got the right idea with everything. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I, it just seems like it's, she's just chum for these sharks, though. I mean, don't you think Joe Lacob was like calling his assistant furiously when he read that that uh, interview thinking we could steal anthony now let's go do it <laughs> <laughs> she's she's vulnerable you know what I mean? it's possible um let's do a couple more questions before we wrap things up here seth says i know we need to see boogie cousins get back to all nba level post injury but why is no one talking about landing spots for him this summer um first of all seth no one is talking about landing spots for boogie because like you said, we have no idea how healthy he is. However, the reason I included this, Ben, is because I do think it's kind of insane how little we've talked about Boogie and his potential impact on this Warriors season. And maybe that's because it is. His, his health is just a, a complete wild card. But, um, I mean, he if he's 80% of what he was... He's going to really, really help them, and it's going to be crazy to see him out there with the other four superstars, and uh, he's going to make life a lot easier for Draymond, who hasn't held up as well against some of these giant centers, and uh, I just think that like the boogie wild card is looming over the next couple weeks, and it should be something we are all talking more about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be one of those situations where the freakout that happened over the summer when he signed and everybody, you know, the guys like you who love to say the Warriors ruin the league are going to have that, you know, that comeback moment when they see him going through the player introductions for the, for the first time. And they're like, oh, my God, we, we forgot he was on this team. And now they can start five All-Stars and this is going to be ridiculous. Um, well, I also think I, that a lot of people have well actually the idea of Boogie helping Golden State. And a lot of people have said, you know, it's the most serious injury in pro sports he doesn't necessarily make them better he's gonna make their defense worse and all this stuff and i you know we'll wait and see but he's pretty yeah. special and he's not well, kevon uh, looney and draymond yeah, i was gonna, gonna say like like i don't know 
I, the nitpicking would be more convincing if their bench wasn't what their bench is, right? Yeah. Like if if they didn't need the help, right? If this was like a, a well-functioning nine and ten-man rotation where everybody's contributing every night and they're in this amazing offensive flow, then you can convince me that like, oh, you know, dropping Boogie into that, he's going to use up possessions, he's going to turn the ball over, he is going to be sort of like the wrench in the system or like you know the the uh, the thing that screws the whole uh, operation up. Yeah. But they're, they're not operating that well right now, and they're not that deep. So they can use talent. Absolutely they can use talent, and he represents that. Yeah, uh, I agree, and I can't wait to see what he turns into on the Warriors and where all this goes because it's, it's just going to be incredibly strange to see him thrown into the mix out there, and I think we're all well, kind of he- underplaying it. Is he going to make you hate the Warriors even more, though? I mean, what if let's say he is – this 80% version that you're talking about. And he does make Draymond's life easier and he's getting along with guys. And now they're pounding the post and there's more room for Steph and all the other things that we sort of envisioned over the summer. Uh, how long until you're like, you know what? Screw this. <laughs> this team is too super. I don't want to watch them anymore. I mean, are, are you going to um, have like a 72 hour period where you actually enjoy it? And then are you going to go back to hate no. it? No, first of all, I have never necessarily, I've never claimed that the Warriors ruined the league. And when I talk about that, I think that, Kevin Durant on the Warriors screwed up uh, with the con- competitive landscape, which, again, if we want to go back to the Harden conversation, some of this shit is just objective truth, okay? And that's a bigger conversation about the CBA. But the, uh, the, the boogie thing, I think that everybody has sort of accepted that this is the final year of the, the, the Warriors in this iteration and and the Durant era is probably coming to an end and so I'm looking at this season as like a fun and incredibly weird dysfunctional swan song for them and uh I think if if they somehow bring Durant back and we have to just keep this going for another year another two years three years then my attitude will change again but um I don't know I'm looking at this as kind of like a barnstorming tour Although, like, the Warriors have been a mess for the last two months. And it's funny, man, because watching actual Warriors fans, they seem more freaked out than I do. And I don't know whether that's me or them, but, like, there's there's real concern in Golden State for what feels like the first time in the last few seasons. Well, that's just because they've been talking so much trash. And it starts with our guys, Sam and Andy. I mean, they've been talking so much reckless trash for four straight years that, yeah, any signs of, like, real dysfunction are going to make them real nervous because, you know, everybody else can go back and look at their tweets from six months ago and, you know, they could get freezing cold take pretty hard, yeah. uh, you know, depending on how things play out. I've but learned the hard way, man. Do not doubt the Warriors. They are going to screw around and look crappy, and then you're going to look up in May and they'll be blowing people off the court. That's just the way it works. Can I uh, shamelessly promote my Washington Post weekly newsletter and change the topic here real quick? Yes, do it. Zion Williamson destinations and we don't have to get into the full conversation here but I want to just plant this seed maybe for later down the road because I really started to do some thinking on what he might mean for the NBA next year and like I mean I'm sure you've seen the highlights like everybody else but we're looking at like full-fledged phenomenon aren't we yeah I mean it's a 360 in game against Clemson granted Clemson hoops is not exactly a powerhouse but very happy for Clemson football getting the title tonight. Anybody but Alabama is a win for America, uh, <laughs> except yeah. for the win connoisseur <laughs> on this podcast. Um, yeah, I had to spend the post game buying Clemson gear. It was tough. No, but, look, uh, no, I'm just kidding. 
I would love to take a road trip to a Clemson game one year. Um, but look, uh, but back on back on track with Zion, you mentioned his the dunk. dunk like, was just think insane. about, and and he does stuff like that in every game. So absolutely, it's phenomenon. You know, his PER right now is like forty-two. I'm not. That's not even like an exaggeration. Like that's like that is obscene and. If you put him in the dunk contest, like his dunk in the game against Clemson is probably going to be better than anything that we see at the 2019 slam dunk contest in Charlotte. And you're always saying like, hey, let these uh, college players get endorsement deals when they're in college. Uh Like, can we just have him get an endorsement deal like from the NBA so he can be in the 2019 slam dunk contest and just win it? Uh, It would be so much better. But anyway, in terms of his best NBA fits, I did some thinking on this. Um, I... I really think the best fit, and this is not like some big market, uh, you know, pandering on my behalf. Yeah. I think the best fit really is the New York Knicks. Mm. And I know that sounds weird because they've been just dysfunctional for 20 years, but you're seeing what Giannis and Brooke Lopez are doing right now, right? Yeah. The stretch five, the power of the stretch five. To me, Zion needs to have a stretch five if he's really going to work in the NBA. And is there a better stretch five, you know, sort of in that mix uh, then Porzingis, who can also kind of play defense. You look at they've got a bunch of other young guys around them. They've got a coach uh, in Fizdale who worked with LeBron down in Miami, so he kind of gets the point forward thing. I think that's going to be how you have to steer Zion in terms of the next level. To me, I want to hear any counter argument, whether it's from you or from the open floor mail at gmail.com, open floor mail at gmail.com listeners, trying to convince me that there's a better NBA fit for Zion. Uh, than the New York. That's Knicks. a great. We'll we'll talk about that on Thursday because I do have some thoughts, um, and and I think we should consider a number of different options. So if you have pitches, hit us up at openfloormail at gmail dot com. Yeah. We we want every pitch, not only from yeah, your not own just team. Um, and here, yeah, no. But also, like, not just from fans whose teams are bottom feeders, because obviously you, you want Zion. Everybody wants Zion, right? So explain why he fits with your context. And if you're a team who's not going to be in the lottery, where do you want Zion to land? And consider not only you know his level of success, how he fits on the court with the other pieces, but also maybe what it would mean for the league too, right? Because, uh, you know, independently, like, if I mean, I was starting to think, like, what happens if Zion's a calf? What happens if Zion's a Timberwolf, right? right? Like, that would be rough. Well, and, and we that, should also we talk don't, about we the don't lottery. want to see that. <laughs> the lottery odds are pretty nuts this year. If you if you look at the way, like the top eight or nine are broken down, it's gonna be kind of a crapshoot. Um, and I'm not sure how it would feel if I were one of the worst teams in the league, like a Cleveland or like an Atlanta, like people who have punted this season and now have like a 12 percent chance at Zion Williamson. Like <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. Um, and Zion, I have questions about too. But first and foremost, to your Knicks question, I think if the Knicks get the number one pick, that that pick is moving, and and it's not going to oh. be Zion. I, and whether it's for Anthony Davis or not, I think the Knicks believe they're getting Ke- Kevin Durant, and if they land the number one pick, that gives them an even better shot, and um, and it'll turn into something like it'll turn into some kind of Durant sidekick. So the, the the Zion pick will become like the third player. It'll almost be like the Wiggins situation, exactly. right? When when uh, when LeBron came back to Cleveland, I like that. You're playing uh, chess, not checkers. That's very impressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Hey, while while I'm in the middle of the shameless plugs, I got another DM here from a guy named Scherner, and I guess we can open our podium segment with this because I think you're gonna find it funny. It's one of my all-time greatest uh, self-owns, or you know, playing myself here. He writes, "Your lantern segment is great, but I'm not sure that you realize that the lantern is also the name of the school paper at the." Ohio State University. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the Wolverine psyche within you has been beaten down by decades of dominance by the Buckeyes. And I got to say, Scherner's right. Didn't I just not play myself completely? I've been hyping this great name, The Lantern. I've been explaining it and re-explaining it every time with the Revolutionary War references. I've been encouraging people to follow me at Instagram uh, you know, at Ben.Golliver to, you know, stay in touch with the Lantern uh, questions and comments so that you can be a part of the show. And little did I realize what I was really doing was hyping up my most hated sports rivals student newspaper. That's pain, Andy. Yeah, you're basically singing that song, Hang On Sloopy, every time you come on and <laughs> oh, run it back with the Lantern segment. <laughs> this is a good way to kill the Lantern segment, actually. It's a win for me. No, um, the lantern's not going anywhere. It will not die. Don't worry. Is it about hang that. on Sloopy or hang on Shoopy? I don't. I don't know. Uh, either way, <laughs> it's just. It, either way, it makes I'm you gonna, vomit. So it's it's yes, great. I'm I'm in a deep dark place with a real moral conundrum. But I'm not changing the name. I'm going to stick with the lantern. I'm just going to try to repurpose it and take it away from a school that's had it running for decades now. Okay. Well, um, do you want to do the the other correction that we got and then bounce? Let's bring okay, it. Okay, so Patrick says, Golliver, you claim to be a nature and wildlife enthusiast waxing poetic about your trips to national parks. On your last podcast, you claimed that T- Teddy Roosevelt didn't belong on Mount Rushmore. Do you realize that no person in the history of the world has done more for preserving wild places and spaces than Teddy Roosevelt. In a time (laughs) when there were no Gore-Tex-wearing, Instagramming, vegan dandies like yourself, traipsing in and out of our beautiful parks on the weekends, Roosevelt wielded his power to safeguard these places for years to come. Were it not for him and John Muir, your Facebook cover photo would be a Bed Bath & Beyond parking lot. If this alone were all he did, he'd deserve a place among Lincoln, Jefferson, and Washington. He did so much more, which I won't get into, but you get the point. Mm. Ben, mm, mm, that was mm. not a cell phone. That was just a traditional loan. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, so many things. First of all, did you think it was a hot take when I said that Roosevelt didn't be on Mount Rushmore? I thought that was sort of generally accepted, that he was like the guy they stuck in the back you know, like clearly they made a big deal for Washington and Lincoln. Jefferson's sort of a big deal. They kind of screwed him up during the the manufacturing process, but he's got a pretty good, you know, profile. Well, but Roosevelt, I mean, Roosevelt's really stuck there in the back. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. I think if you're if you're listing our iconic presidents, Lincoln, Jefferson, and Washington are your top three, and then FDR yeah. is probably number four. But FDR probably didn't hold office when they were building Mount Rushmore or chiseling it. And so I think uh, Roosevelt was probably in that mix at the time of construction. Yeah, so he was selected. So first of all, there was three iterations of Mount Rushmore. The first was Washington and Lincoln. Then the second version came along adding Jefferson, and then they added 
Roosevelt in the sort of the third iteration. So he was meant to symbolize sort of the future and the growth of America because like like you're mentioning, he had just recently gotten out of office when they were putting this whole thing together and it took decades to make uh-huh. it. Um, I think my point when we were arguing was actually that, you know, if these presidents were asked, do you belong on Mount Rushmore now? Sort of like if we asked LeBron, are you the GOAT? LeBron would say yes. My point was just, if we asked Teddy Roosevelt now, do you belong on Mount Rushmore? I would hope he would say no, because he's not even the best president with his own last name, right? <laughs> like you're mentioning, like you're mentioning, FDR really deserves that spot, and you can make cases for other guys too, but... I don't know, I guess old my Rough big... Rider Teddy was pretty headstrong, if I, if I recall correctly. No, he was, but come on, Andrew. We're talking about FDR. They changed the rules so he could stay in office. The fireside chats. Think I mean, of t- all the wild world- places and spaces he's preserved. I, I do agree with the emailer no. that Teddy should be on there simply because of his emphasis on national parks. No, he, Patrick makes a good point on that with the Gore-Tex references and all of that, <laughs> but I, I just want to say this, Andrew. Do you know what's worse than tourists and corporations traipsing through the pristine Yosemite Valley? Uh, what? Bed, Bath, and Beyond parking Not- lots? No, Nazi tourists and corporations traipsing through the pristine Yosemite Valley. And that's why you have to put FDR there we go. Um, you know, on, on Mount Rushmore. Because, look, we would not be able to enjoy all these amazing places. And, look, they're great. And I wish we could protect everything all the time. But, you know, when we're looking at our sort of our hierarchy of needs not being subjected to uh you know thousands of years of rule by hitler and his followers probably surpasses having good you know restroom facilities and you know nice campgrounds uh in a you know in some far-flung places i i mean this is from somebody who loves the national parks deeply who reads about their history and so forth i just that that seems like an easy call yeah FDR has a pretty impressive resume because when I was putting him in that Rushmore mix, I was thinking New Deal and some some of the stuff he did with the courts, uh, and forgot Dude, all he about was LeBron. World War Two. <laughs> he, he was LeBron. He was Kareem, man. He was around for yeah, decades. He did a pretty good job. Um, but not to turn this into a history podcast because what's more important is that you are a Gore-Tex wearing, Instagramming, vegan dandy traipsing in and out of our beautiful parks every weekend. <laughs> um, so if there's one thing okay. to take away from this episode of Open Floor, it's that I am about to get kicked out of this ballroom and you... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're perfect. Well, Andrew dandy. is escorted <laughs> is escorted out by security. Guys, go ahead and email us. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We appreciate all of your comments, questions, concerns, and also your patience with us as we get a little loopy uh, late night at, I think, 1.30 local time for Andrew. Don't forget, follow me at ben.goliver on Instagram. I shout out Andrew all the time. His handle is hard to uh, explain <laughs> on an audio podcast, so just wait until I tag him on the Instagram story. You can follow him too. Andrew, we've been getting dozens if not hundreds of new followers on instagram i think it's all because of the lantern and i really appreciate that andrew people should also check us out on apple Podcasts. find our page by searching for open floor that's two words scroll down there'll be a section that says rate and review tap five stars we would really appreciate that support it helps us spread the word and we're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor check us out there too andrew Until later this week, I will talk to you. All right, man.